What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Late last year, America's Treasury Department warned that cryptocurrencies threaten the efficacy of sanctions. But so far, digital currencies appear to have helped Ukraine more than Russia. And it sounds like something out of a nightmare. Hundreds of cyborg cockroaches, driven by artificial intelligence, creepily crawling through buildings. We look at research efforts to develop expert, autonomous search and rescue bugs. But first... Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky has had astonishing success at rallying allies in his fight against the Russian invasion. Yesterday, three EU leaders, three NATO leaders, paid a visit of solidarity to the besieged capital Kiev. The Prime Ministers of Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovenia. The Czech leader Petra Fiala tweeted afterwards, We admire your brave fight. You're not alone. Our countries stand by your side. The West has proved extraordinarily and swiftly united in its support for Ukraine and its sanctions for Russia. What about Russia's allies, though? Reports are piling up, suggesting that it is turning to China to request some backup in the form of military supplies. That's a development that White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki made clear would come at a cost to Beijing. Should they provide military or other assistance uh, that, of course, violates sanctions or, uh, or supports the war effort, uh, that there will be uh, significant consequences. In recent years, the two countries have made a show of being aligned, being friendly. Now that Russia is a pariah, bogged down militarily and shackled economically, what's in it for its big neighbor? China does not welcome this war, and at least Chinese diplomats that seems startled initially. So in Beijing and in the United Nations in New York, even senior Chinese diplomats were visibly squirming and kind of asking foreign counterparts what was going on. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. Then they settled quite quickly into a stance that seems more comfortable for China, which is officially high-minded uh, neutrality, that China is a peace-loving giant, but actually it is a stance of pro-Russian, anti-American pseudo-neutrality. And that is basically because they don't want it to end with Vladimir Putin humiliated. So they are willing to wait for him to get a victory, perhaps the fall of Kyiv. And diplomats here in Beijing have told me that they think that Beijing is happy to sit back and watch the disaster. And why is it that China is so concerned about a defeat for Vladimir Putin? Above all, because that would be a win for America. The sad reality is that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't have particularly strong views about who runs Ukraine. Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, and Vladimir Putin do have a shared worldview. But that shared worldview is really bound together by a joint resentment 
of America. And as a result, uh, China has avoided calling Russia the aggressor in this conflict. We also saw the Foreign Minister Wang Yi come out during the annual meeting of Parliament to describe relations with Russia as rock solid. That, I think, was a signal from the very top. But how far is Xi Jinping willing to go with this, especially given suggestions that Russia has asked China for military support, for hardware, even for food? Two weeks ago, I might have been very, very skeptical of that because traditionally the idea was that China was very resistant to anything that even looked like a military alliance or even alliance uh, with Russia. They did not want to be bound to come to Russia's aid every time Russia started an adventure precisely because Vladimir Putin has a habit of invading other countries and that's awkward for China. But the context is this absolute kind of partnership at the very, very top between Xi and Putin back-to-back in the face of an aggressive, hostile America and bullying Western allies. And in that context, it is absolutely the case that even if China probably doesn't want to get caught delivering military aid right now in the middle of a war, is actually not pressing Vladimir Putin to bring this to an end because they don't want him to lose because that would be a win for America. Implicit in that then is a belief in China that Vladimir Putin will eventually win. The Chinese have been consistently surprised by the incompetence of the Russian military. So it's not that the Chinese perhaps are certain that Vladimir Putin is going to win. It's more that in my reporting uh, this week, talking to a lot of diplomats uh, and senior officials here, the consensus, I think, among big Western governments is that China does on balance think that the sheer weight of the Russian military will prevail and that their strong preference is for some kind of visible victory, maybe, as I say, the fall of Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital. And then, in the words of one uh, diplomat, we can expect to see China piously call for a ceasefire over the rubble of what remains of Kyiv. And how is this conflict being reported on in China? So if your main news source is the official state TV evening news, which is uh, what hundreds of millions of Chinese watch, you will not see images of maternity hospitals being bombed. You will not see images of human suffering Uh, in Ukraine. You'll see uh, men in suits having peace talks uh, with a kind of commentary saying that China, as a grown-up responsible great power, is promoting peace talks. And you'll also see Russian propaganda and disinformation on the main evening Chinese news being kind of amplified and repeated. So the view here is very much anti-American, that America is a bully, and that it's bullying Russia for standing up to the West. And this is fundamentally seen as a kind of conflict that is the sort of thing that China needs to stand up to because it's the sort of thing that America wants to do to China. And this is all tied in with what might happen if China were to take back the island of Taiwan. But just letting the carnage play out is clearly an unpopular position to take at the moment. What's at stake for Beijing here? Xi Jinping, the supreme leader, is aiming for something ambitious at the end of this year. He wants a third term at the top of the Communist Party. Uh, That involves breaking some rules uh, about succession. And he has declared that Vladimir Putin is his best friend. During the Beijing Winter Olympics, uh, he signed a joint statement with Vladimir Putin that was all about their shared worldview and a friendship and partnership without limits. So at a very basic level, if Vladimir Putin is utterly humiliated or defeated in Ukraine, then Xi Jinping risks being the guy who backed a loser. And then there's the kind of broader question about how does China see uh, an isolated, weakened, sanctioned Russia that has lost a lot of its trade partners There's good and bad in there for China. So 
China certainly is always up for striking a hard bargain. It would like to buy some oil and gas at a fixed price, at a cheap price. There are geopolitical things that Russia has resisted for a bit of time. China would like uh, access to Arctic shipping routes. China perhaps would like to build ports along Russia's Arctic coasts. And maybe Russia isn't in a position to say no. Even some really sensitive things, uh, although China is getting you know, a much stronger military power, there are still some things that Russia has that are much more advanced. For example, uh, nuclear submarines that fire intercontinental ballistic missiles. Russia's are bigger, better, faster, quieter, and it has never sold them to anyone else. Uh, if China would like to buy them, that would be an astonishing change in Russia's strategy. But the next few years will tell us how much choice Russia has as it sits next to this giant China that is its only friend with deep pockets. But in terms of partnering with a very, very unpopular aggressor here, how, how much pain is Beijing willing to, to take in, in solidarity? So Beijing, I don't think, is going to want to be a pariah with Vladimir Putin. And they are certainly very concerned about Chinese banks or Chinese companies getting hit by sanctions. It doesn't want to lose its access to Western markets, which are far more valuable and far larger than its markets in Russia. And that's one of the big problems that Russia has, which is that the Russian economy is a tenth the size of the Chinese economy. China is certainly going to end up stronger relatively to Russia, and it will take advantage of that in ways that don't endanger China. But I think fundamentally, the really heartbreaking reality is that this isn't about the suffering of the people of Ukraine. It isn't really about Russia. Russia is a proxy, it's a useful partner in the fight that really interests China, which is China's rise and whether China can push past America, this vicious, sulky, racist ex-hegemon over the next few decades. And that is what this conflict is all about, seen from Beijing. David, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. You can get a lot more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents by subscribing to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal wherever you are by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. So it all started from this idea that we need to help our army, to help the people of Ukraine, when the Russian army just starting to advance from many angles from different parts of Ukraine. When Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, the country's central bank immediately put in place measures that made it harder to move money out of and into the country. That posed a problem for outsiders looking to help the government financially. 
So two days later, Ukraine's deputy digital minister, Alex Bornyakov, was given a task. Figure out how to let foreigners easily send money to help Ukraine's fight against Russia. So we need a tool to quickly perform those transactions. And uh, and crypto was kind of a first choice for that. And uh, we partnered with an exchange called Kuna, which is Ukrainian um, uh, crypto exchange, uh, in order to build this infrastructure to set up a perimeter with their safety wallets and uh, and also to help with their currency exchanges, transfers, and, and so on and so forth. So, so basically... Millions poured to, in, uh, providing a crucial lifeline as the government sought to stock up on military equipment and supplies. No one was ready to such horrific events. So crypto really helped during the first days because we were able to cover immediate needs. Ukraine's success at fundraising using digital currencies stands in stark contrast to concerns that Russians could use crypto to circumvent sanctions. One of the risks was that cryptocurrencies, which are perceived to be this sort of super sovereign, decentralized, unregulated, libertarian landscape, that they might be potentially used to try and either move money around or preserve some of the wealth. And that might aid wealthy Russians in sidestepping the sanctions that the West wanted to impose. Alice Fullwood is a finance correspondent with The Economist. So it seems as though a lot of the fears about cryptocurrency have not necessarily been borne out. It looks as though, you know, far from being a tool to help Russia, if anything, crypto seems to be being utilized to help Ukraine instead. So that's super interesting. I want to talk about Ukraine, but let's move there in a second. First, let me drill down a bit. Are Russians generally staying away from cryptocurrencies? As, As I understood it, transaction volumes have increased, right? Yes, there's definitely evidence that Russian people have been buying up more crypto. So you can look at things like trading volumes in the ruble-bitcoin currency pair on Binance, which is one of the biggest crypto exchanges by volume. Those climbed from sort of normal levels, which is about 50 Bitcoin a day, traded to about 10 times that level in the immediate aftermath of the invasion, although that's since come back to normal. It's worth pointing out, though, that that may stem from a desire to hold an asset which was not plunging in value. The ruble has plunged by 40% or so since Russia invaded Ukraine. Bitcoin is roughly flat. And those flows also are just just not enormous. They are not the sort of size of, of flows that you would need to see for multiple very wealthy Russians to be protecting a lot of their wealth. So what it seems like we're seeing is is maybe sort of ordinary, perhaps middle-class Russians buying and holding crypto as an asset to hold value, right? Not as a way to get around sanctions. Yeah, that certainly is my perception of what is going on. And when you think about what you would be trying to do to evade a sanction using cryptocurrency, it becomes pretty obvious that they're actually not a great tool for Russians to utilize to evade sanctions. And why is that? There are sort of three major flaws for using crypto to evade sanctions. The first is that it's actually not that easy to convert huge amounts of ruble or sort of Russian wealth into cryptocurrency. I spoke to Tamika Tillman, who is a former advisor to Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton, and he now is a policy advisor for a crypto venture capital investor. And he explained the crux of the issue for Russians. 
they would have to have taken a very different regulatory approach than they have over the last several years. The Russians, along with a number of other authoritarian governments, have been pretty hostile to the utilization of digital assets. They have not created the types of on-ramps and off-ramps that you would need in order to facilitate broad-scale adoption of digital assets within their economy. And they also haven't created a regulatory framework that would facilitate the use of Web3 networks as an alternative to traditional finance. Second issue is that even if people did manage to convert a lot of their wealth into crypto, number one, there's not much you can do with it. You can't buy a lot of things directly in crypto, like financial assets or even everyday items. And also, once you've done that, every transaction that you do using that cryptocurrency is public. You know, Ethereum, Bitcoin, they both are open public blockchain, which means there's this sort of bulletproof record of every transaction ever done. And that's actually proving very useful for law enforcement who are trying to pin down people using crypto for potentially illicit means. So crypto transactions are generally open. They're generally legible. What about exchanges? Are they being affected by sanctions? And, 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 and beyond that, does it seem like governments are paying more attention to digital currencies, to crypto, since the war began? There are two main ways in which exchanges are being affected by sanctions or helping to sort of implement them. And the first is that crypto exchanges have know your customer requirements. They, they need to know who their customers are. They have been asked to implement anti-money laundering measures. And so they themselves are implementing, as banks do, the sort of normal sanctions measures on their customers because they know who their customers are. There's also been this sort of specific effort from governments to make sure that they do enforce sanctions and make sure that they're not being conduits for illicit financing. So you've seen statements from FinCEN, which is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Agency, the Treasury, and even the White House. They issued a statement with a group of G7 countries you know, making it clear that digital currency companies also had to implement sanctions. And on March 9th, Joe Biden delivered an executive order that had been sort of long awaited by the crypto industry that laid out a lot of guidelines for how crypto should be regulated going forwards. And that included cracking down on any illicit financial activity. But even so, as we heard at the beginning of this piece, crypto has been really helpful on the other side of the war, right, for Ukraine. Yes, yeah, so it's transpired that it's much more useful to use crypto if you're trying to move in the open rather than in the shadows. Ukraine has received almost $100 billion worth of digital assets in donations. Those have gone into wallets that the Ukrainian government set up themselves and some sort of private wallets that have been set up to support them. And that money is going directly to fund the war effort. I spoke to Alex Bornyakov about where all of this money is going. Uh, the general focus of the fund right now is mostly on bulletproof West. Uh, night vision goggles, optics, uh, medical supplies. Right now, we, we're talking about deal to purchase food rations, but not for uh, just for military, but also for refugees. So there are a couple of benefits for Ukraine using cryptocurrency in this instance. One is that it's very fast. You know, it's much quicker to move a crypto token from one wallet to another than it is to wait for an international bank transfer that can take several days and be, you know, held up. And importantly for Ukraine in this instance, they aren't necessarily having to convert that crypto into other currencies to then spend it. Some of their suppliers have actually been willing to accept digital currencies, even though they don't necessarily under normal circumstances. At this point, we can send them wires. So they take this burden of converting crypto on themselves. So to be precise, it's not because companies were accepting crypto and we're looking for companies who accept crypto. 
crypto. And this is just like a common thing for them. But um, in most cases, this is just because they understand the situation. They say, listen, if, okay, if you have our funds in crypto, send us crypto, we're going to deal with it with exchange later. And so, and so given that, given how cryptocurrencies have been used in this crisis, what do you think we've learned about them more broadly? I think this is quite an interesting potential transition moment for crypto. You know, it's long been perceived as a tool that, you know, might help people skirt around government regulations. And what we're seeing in the Russia-Ukraine situation is that actually governments have a pretty good handle on this. They think that they can trace down people trying to use it illicitly, and it doesn't really seem like it's that useful for those people. At the same time, you've seen this use case to sort of help them fund their war effort. And and that dynamic really contrasts with the perception of crypto so far. So I think the war has really made it clear that there are some serious uses for crypto, in particular in these sort of extreme events, but also that we can expect it to be policed and subject to serious regulation too. All right, Alice, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, John. Do you hear that? When I first heard it, it sounded to me like a tiny little sneeze. It's the sound of a Madagascan hissing cockroach. Some years ago in the back offices of London's Natural History Museum, I held one in my hand, all hissing away. They're about six or seven centimeters long, and if you don't like bugs, these things would really bug you. You wouldn't want one coming to find you in your home. But if researchers have their way, they might be coming to find people trapped in collapsed buildings. It might sound like something out of science fiction, but scientists are turning cockroaches into cyborgs. Farah Chia writes for The Economist. And they're hoping that these insects will be able to do the search part of search and rescue operations in the coming years. So why would scientists want to do that when they could just make robots to do the same? Why go to all the trouble of designing and building a drone if nature has already done most of the job for you? Plus, because of the size of these robots and the batteries that are on them, many of them don't last beyond two to three minutes. So for years, scientists have been trying to figure out how to robotize insects. And they do this by augmenting the insects. Some try to turn flying creatures into drones, while others try to take control of creepy crawlies like electronically controlling a cockroach. So how exactly then do you turn an insect into a cyborg? Has this been done before? Yes, so the first insect that was ever controlled was way back in 1997. And what scientists did back then was they stimulated the antennae, fooling it into thinking that was some kind of obstruction or threat, thus causing the insect to turn left or right. Of late, scientists have begun to turn their attention to search and rescue operations, looking for human survivors in this rubble, whether it's due to an earthquake, a sinkhole, or even a structural defect that has caused a whole building to come down. So it's not just being able to drive them by remote control, but also equipping them with sensors and things? They put two very important items on it. One is an IR camera that picks up images as it goes along, and each of these images gives quite high accuracy in terms of picking up human subjects. And a lot of this is automated, meaning that there's an onboard program which deciphers a heat signature coming from a human subject as opposed to one that is not. 
So the second type of sensor that they have on is a carbon dioxide sensor to detect any survivors, but it also has implications for other kinds of chemical sensors. So the whole process is autonomous, which means that the cockroach navigates itself through the rubble on its own without necessarily needing command center to send any other information to it. However, if it does pick up signals or heat signatures along the way, it then sends this information back to command center so that operators know where the cockroach has detected, say, a survivor. How will this look in the field? When will we see these things put to use? Ong Ka Hing, who is the head of robotics at Singapore's Technology of the Home Ministry, estimates that they need about 500 cockroaches to cover an area of about 5 square kilometres. And right now, they are refining the position mechanism for locating victims. But in an outdoor setting, the location mechanism is something that they are still working on and that might take up a year. It seems to me that autonomous sensor-equipped bugs that can go around seeing and sensing things would be pretty useful even beyond search and rescue. Yes, so Professor Sato, who I spoke with and who leads the team, did acknowledge that this technology will be useful, for example, in anti-terrorism operations. So one thing that people did point out is that flight control, for example, is very difficult in a cyborg. Right, So it'll be easier to send drones if you would like to go on an espionage mission. So I don't think we'll be seeing any flying spy cockroaches anytime soon, Jason. Farah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. Or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise. Where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem. Where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.